Okay, so <clears throat> that was quite a session we had last, last Friday on uh, Melchizedekian priesthood. If you haven't seen it or heard it, I would encourage you to go up to, I don't know if it's up on Share Faith yet, it's not up on YouTube yet, but that's one that you definitely want to catch. We had some really great discussion around that last week. So that was Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. We're going to move on tonight, and uh, let me just get there in my Bible. And uh, I, I think we're going to finish this chapter up tonight. No, we won't. Uh, there are actually 28 verses in this chapter, so we'll get through verse 19. So I want to begin with talking about hope. Hope defined, now this is the way it's defined in the Oxford Dictionary, it's expectation and desire combined. Uh, it's, it's not an easy word or a concept to define. Its expression, all of humanity engages in hope. The hard worker hopes that he or she will be able to retire one day to a life of leisure, right? The frugal spender or saver hopes to save enough money to insulate against any unforeseen difficulty. The exerciser hopes to live long, a long, healthy life with a full range of mobility. The young girl one day hopes to marry the man of her dreams, have children, and live the fairy tale life. Without hope, life loses its flavor and becomes just an exercise in futility. The evil powers of this world that do the work of their father the devil are out to crush hope at all costs. Because while man still has hope, he is not so easy to subjugate. The one thing that brings man the greatest sense of hope is the supernatural. There are different beliefs concerning that which is supernatural. Most of them are false and evil. But it does not matter. The one who does the bidding of their father, the ones who do the bidding of their father, the devil, are out to crush man's belief in all of them. To the end that man will only put his hope in man. That's what their ultimately the goal is, right? <coughs> There's nothing but man. Put your faith in science, um, uh, you know, put your faith in man, but don't put your faith in anything else. This inevitably leads to nihilism. It's expressing itself in full force with the present teenage generation. The 14-year-old who killed a 9-year-old to experience what it was like. There's all kinds of, you know, now that's becoming a constant thing where you have a mass casualty event, you know, mass shooting, you know. And uh, a lot of times, it's, it's just that. It's teenagers and young men, you know. Um, so, uh, but man cannot survive in this place, and sooner or later, will turn once again to the supernatural to find hope. More often than not, the occult, which leads to further hopelessness and bondage. So you see, and that flows right into, we've gone through this stage, <coughs> you know, um, you know, for a while there, pastors from the pulpit were singing, we're in postmodernism, we're in postmodernism, you know. But the reality is, is we're past postmodernism now. We're in the age of neo-paganism. And we're seeing a resurgence of all of the pagan religions now. Uh, and just newer expressions of pagan religions that are happening, you know, in all over the world now, right? Okay. So the Jews, now let's, you know, kind of zero in here to our study. The Jews, their hope was in the patriarchs and the law. And this is why they crucified Jesus. 
You take, a ma you take away a man's hope and he will seek to kill you. He devastated their hope in the patriarchs and the law. Why did he do that? And, and it wasn't so much he, that he devastated their hope in the patriarchs and the law, but what he devastated was how they had interpreted the patriarchs and the law, right? <clears throat> so you, you understand that, so the, uh, there were two groups of rabbis that came um, after, they came shortly after the ministry of, of Christ. The, the first group, was, they were called the, the Tanim, or the Tanah, and they came up with a body of writings called the Tanah. And so the Tanah was a bunch of rabbis who got together and they came up with interpretations of the Torah, right, or of the Tanakh, right? And so over the course of time, they became codified so, so that I, a, a Tanah could, could, could contradict another Tanah, but it could not contradict the Torah. All right, and so, so that was there. And then after the Tanah came a group called the um, the Anim or the Ana, right? And so, again, after they got done and compiled their works, a a Anim, I think I, I heard the name escapes me, but I think it, I know it begins with an A. They could contract one, they could contradict one another in their teachings, but they couldn't contradict the Tanah and they couldn't contradict the Torah. So what happens is now the Tanah takes up the commentary on the Torah, takes up the full authority of the Torah. And so that's what Jesus stood against. And you'll hear it referenced in the, New, in the Gospels as the oral traditions or the traditions of the fathers, right? The traditions. So I asked my, I asked my friend about this. I said, well, I said, where does this, you know, where do all of these things come from? He says, well, there, you know, he tells me, and, and there seems to be some scriptural support for that, that not only did, did uh, Moses receive a written law, but there was also an oral tradition that was communicated to him on Mount Sinai as well, right? So if you, if you go back and you look at the, at the you know the the relevant passages in the in the Torah, it says quite clearly that that uh, that God commanded Moses to record the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances. So there were three things, right? The commandments. We assume that they were the Ten Commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances, right? Okay. So I said okay, and so I asked Richard Flashman this. And he pointed out a passage to me in, in the Old Testament where, where there's a statement in there that Moses recorded everything that God spoke to him on the mount. He said, this is what you say to him. Okay. So anyway, what happens is, so, so they, they put so much faith and trust in these oral traditions. They're called fence laws, right? So if the commandment, you know, there was a... Um, there was a, there's a, an Old Testament precept in the law that says that you cannot boil a kid in its mother's milk, right? 
I guess that was some sort of delicacy to take meat and boil it in milk. I don't understand, but sh there was a law against it, right? It's, it's one of the 613 commandments. So over the course of time, they've extrapolated it that you cannot have meat and dairy product on the same dish. As a matter of fact, if you were to, there's a show, it's either on Netflix or Amazon Prime, it's called Chetzel, Chetzel, and it's a great story. It's, it's a great story about a ultra-Orthodox family living in Jerusalem. And what you'll see in every Orthodox family, I never, I didn't never ask my rabbi friend if he has this in his house, although he's, he's one of the, the uh, kosher inspectors, so he goes around to inspect places for kosher that they'll have a double sink with a barrier in between them. There's a physical barrier, you know, that stands about this high above the sink. You know, it's just a thin piece of plexiglass. It's a double sink, but there's, it extends up. It, it extends up so that there's no way to mix the two. So, uh, so it was, they kept adding these laws because they figure, well, that's the line. We can't, the Torah says we can't cross that line. So what we're going to do is we're going to move the barrier back a little ways so that they'll never even get close to that line, right? And so, and so that's how it all got mixed up and distorted over the ages. And that is what Jesus attacked. He, was, he attacked the, the traditions, as he puts them, that they were placing the traditions of men above the word of God, about what God had, above what God had commanded them, right? You know, if you, uh, you know, this, the, one of the Ten Commandments was, you know, to honor your mother and father, but a, a son, as a result of some of these traditions, a son could say, whatever profit you, you got from me is given to the temple, and therefore he's no longer bound to honor his mother and father. And honor, honoring the mother and father within that context means taking care of them when they need to be taken care of. Right? And that's what Jesus was attacking. But it had gotten so mixed up that the people couldn't distinguish what was truly the Word of God and what were superimpositions of the commandments of men. And so, in their eyes, he was taking down everything they had placed their faith in. He was destroying their hope. Right? Even, even today, you know, uh, you know, there, there, is a, there, was, there is a belief that if you, are part of, if you are part of the Jewish nation, the Jewish commonwealth, you will not go, you will not go to hell, right? And so, and so they believe that, that the righteousness of one is imputed to, is imputed as the righteousness of many. Right? And they believe that. So, okay. So I think I mentioned before that, you know, Abraham is uh, in one of their midrashes. Abraham is stationed at the gates of Gehenna. And if a Jewish person ends up wandering there by accident, he stops them and points them in the right direction. Or, um, or if an uncircumcised Jewish child uh, is going into 
going into Gehenna, he takes the circ he circumcises the child and puts the, circ puts the circumcised flesh on a Gentile baby and sends, you know, the child to, to Abraham's bosom. Okay, anyway, that's what was driving a lot of their hesitation. Still, in and of itself, there was a type of hopelessness embedded in the law. Violation of the law meant expulsion from the covenant blessings. Violation of the law brought many times capital punishment, and yet there was no offering for sins committed intentionally. Okay, and there Hebrews 9-7 uh, is a quote there that says, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. There was no, first of all, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were meant to cover unintentional sins. And that, the, that covering of that un, unintentional sin had nothing to do with eternity, but merely continued the covenant relationship between the individual and the nation. Right? So, so those sacrifices allowed the individual to stay within the bounds of the covenant nation. In other words, he would not be put out of the synagogue. He would not be put out of, out of, out of the, the covenant nation. Okay. Yet this is what they had, and this is where their hope lie. Now fast forward to the Hebrew Christians. The difficulty they were facing and what lay ahead of them, they were thinking of turning back to placing their hope in the patriarchs and the law, even if only for a season. So they were, they were coming under persecution on the one hand, and they were, you know, uh, contemplating at least <coughs> outwardly going back to the worship of the patriarchs and the law until the perse persecution had passed. <coughs> on the other hand, they were, as I have said many times throughout the study, having a real difficulty with the concept of a human, of a divine human Messiah whose teaching would supersede the law and the prophets. So this was their problem. Okay, the author seeks to head this thinking off at the pass. He delivers stern words of God's chastisement and the life of spiritual immaturity. I have never in my life encountered a man, and this is my own personal um, observation I have never in my life encountered a man or a woman of spiritual maturity that has fallen to hopelessness with the introduction of Melchizedek in chapter 7 he sets out to do two things instill in them the reality of the supernatural once again the mystery man Melchizedek which we looked at we spent our whole time looking at last week that they were thinking of turning back to what they were thinking of turning back to contain not nearly as much hope as the path they were now walking. Indeed, it would put them back under the state of hopelessness of the law. And what else would happen if they turned away from Messiah? They would, they would renege on the true hope. They would renege on the true hope and put themselves back under the judgment of 70 A.D. Right? Right? Okay. Okay. And this is pre-70 A.D.? Yes, this is pre I think this was around 65, 67, somewhere around there. Right around the time the siege of Jerusalem started. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, 
so under C, he continues in his discourse, the patriarchs, the law, and the trappings of Jewish religion were never meant to be an, an end in and of themselves, but only to point to a better hope, a better time, a better priest, a better priesthood. And that enters in here the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, proved by the historical fact that the patriarchs, both offices of the priesthood, were exempt from the tithe, tithe law, but they paid tithes to Melchizedek. Even Levi, who receives tithes, and this is um, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I have a question. Yes. Um, I had the impression that I can't remember what passage in the Old Testament. The Levites received the tithe, and the priests didn't generally receive the tithe. Uh-huh. Yes. So, so the so the Levites received a tithe from the people, right. and they themselves tithed the tithe of the tithe right. to the to the priesthood ministering in the in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle. Right. So they gave the best of the tithe. Yep. To Aaron. Yes. As, as their portion. Right. Yeah, you know that I don't know if we're kind of splitting hairs there. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know if it actually says the word tithe. You know, it may, um, but that that's not my understanding of it. Is that they were exempt from the tithe because they were exempt from the tithe because the tithe was supposed to be according to the increase of the produce of the land, right? As God prospered the people, then, right, so they were to give that tithe to the priesthood. But the priesthood didn't have any land, right? Right, and they, and they weren't supposed to be working the land, they were supposed to be working the priesthood. Yeah. Right, until the people stopped Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let me, um, okay, so let me go on here. This one act proves the following. The, Levi the Levitical priesthood was deficient. In Hebrews 7.11 we read, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, or according to succession of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So remember... Uh, you know, I've been saying all along that this Melchizedekian priesthood was a succession, right? It wasn't an order like Benedine monks or, you know, or Carmelite nuns or anything like that, but there was a, a succession of priesthoods. So if the ultimate priesthood were the, the Aaronic priesthood, then at that point, the Melchizedekian priesthood would have ceased, would have been superseded by the Aaronic priesthood. Right, but but that's not the case, right? And it's very it was very clearly never to be the case because we saw it's either in Psalm one hundred two verse eight or Psalm one hundred eight verse two, you know, there's you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
so that, so that that was an Old Testament declaration that the Messiah would come and he would come in the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood and would be last in the line because he would be eternal. Remember, the priesthood, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek passed only upon the death of the priest, mm -hmm. and it would pass to the next in line. Okay, so that's what the author is saying there. So just some of those words there. Perfection is the Greek word teleos, which has the force of the superlative, right? Great, greater, greatest. The greatest would be the superlative. While the Levitical priesthood was great, and greater than any of the pagan priesthood, it was not the greatest priesthood. If it were, then there could not arise a greater priesthood. It would be impossible, right? Just now using simple logic there. If the greatest priesthood were the Levitical priesthood, then there would not be need for another priesthood. Okay. Okay, this implies and improve, proves another truth. The law of the priesthood selection was deficient. Verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The law of priesthood selection. Okay. Proved by the following historical fact. For he, verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Right? And so, and so this is another issue. Okay. The tribe of Judah was the kingly line. And the tribe of Levi was the priestly line. Okay. But Jesus came from the line of Judah, not the line of Levi. The giving of the law as it pertained to the priesthood, never spoke a single thing about priests being selected from the tribe of Judah. And still there is greater proof. Verse 15, And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshy commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So that phrase, fleshy commandment, is basically a temporal, time-space, continuum-based commandment. Power of an endless life there means a life without beginning or end. Therefore, this priesthood must have been ordained in eternity outside of time and space. Therefore, one must logically conclude that the Levitical priesthood was never meant to be permanent and hope was never meant to fully rest on its existence. And Hebrews 7.17 says, For he testified, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the law of the Levitical priesthood was ultimately weak and unprofitable and made nothing perfect. Verse 18 says, For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So, think about this for a moment. So now, we draw, do we draw near to God through the, through the Aaronic priesthood, through the Levitical priesthood? Let's say that we're, we're Jews, okay? <clears throat> do we draw near to God now through the Levitical priesthood? So then, it's very clear that the way 
to God is to draw near through the Melchizedekian priesthood, right? So then what was the purpose of the Levitical priesthood? Why even bother? Why just not? Why did God even bother with that? You ever think about that, Doug? I want to get other people. Okay. It is important to think about because I, I think it's been pretty clearly demonstrated that the Melchizedekian priesthood goes all the way back to Adam. And it goes from Adam and goes to Christ as the final priest in the succession of Melchizedek. So it's always been active in some way. And that was the way, that was always, according to what we're reading now, the way to approach God. Mm -hmm. So then what was the purpose of the Aaronic priesthood? Why didn't God just tell them about the priesthood of Melchizedek on Mount Sinai? Okay, Doug? So the nation of Israel was bound under the traditional covenant. And within the covenant, there was a priesthood that would provide a covering year to year to year. So there's a whole system there that is replaced by the new covenant, which is an eternal covenant, unconditional. And the whole thing goes away. The Aaronic priesthood, everything goes away. Because you're now in, under a new covenant with a new priest. But does it though? I believe that it, it's fulfilled in Christ. But what about in the Messianic temple? In the Messianic temple you have sacrifices taking place again. It's right there in the latter chapters of Ezekiel. Is that still the law as the Sinai covenant or is it something new? Well, so I think what it does is it strikes at the heart that puts you on the horns of a dilemma which forces you to kind of think okay there has to be another reason for these sacrifices beyond maintaining the covenant your covenant status in the nation right, right. if you didn't perform the sacrifices and the offerings and again those were for unintentional sins there was no offering for intentional sin right so that you so you would maintain your place in the covenant nation in other words you would not be cast out of the synagogue you know things like that um, um, so there had to be another purpose and I think that other purpose was I mean when you look at first of all there is not enough blood in the animal kingdom on the face of the earth to cover for the sins of humanity, let alone, well, just to cover for the Jewish nation, let alone the sins of humanity. I mean, when you look at the dedic Solomon's dedication of the temple, how many animals were sacrificed? I mean, we're talking literally hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed in the dedication of the temple. And we're not talking about pigeons here, we're talking about oxen, you know? And so I think that the the ironic priesthood was meant to place a burden on the individuals to say this is never enough no matter no matter what i do you know i'm always having to to have another animal bleed 
on my account. And, and you still have that whole mindset in the Orthodox community today. Sure you do. Yeah, except it's it's both. You know, it's it's good works, it's it's other things, but you go to Yom Kippur service with leather shoes, oh you blew it. Yeah. So uh, I think that that's what the Aaronic priesthood was about, right? On the one hand, again, it was a, it was a national covenant. So if you, the, the national covenant really had nothing to do with the individual, it had everything to do with the nation, right? And so everyone in that covenant stands or falls together, right? So the person who sinned unintentionally could provide a sacrifice to cover that unintentional sin and then there was you know the the yearly offering you know um, on the day of atonement right but that was never meant to be the end-all do-all because it's also meant to it's it's always having to face the reality that sin is a death bringer it's a death bringer, and you know. Visually, right? Think about, you know, you think about the the uh, the Paschal Lamb, right? So they were more than just farm animals; they were like pets. You have to understand that in many cases, I at that time, the animals lived indoors with the people. So you know, Junior would get very familiar with the Paschal lamb. And then that lamb would, would be slaughtered. And it would be slaughtered because of <coughs> the sin of the individual offering the sacrifice. So I can really understand this because my aunt, who's actually two years younger than me, I remember when we were younger, she was so thrilled because my grandmother brought a rabbit into the house. And the rabbit became her pet for some number of months and grew fat. And then one day, we went over to my grandparents' house and my aunt was sitting at the table crying uncontrollably because her pet rabbit was now being served on the dinner table. So, so that helps you to understand, you know, that there was just a, a never-ending reminder that sin is a death bringer. But when, when the eternal Melchizedek came on the scene, he puts an end to that forever, right? Okay. That's the whole umbrella of the law, though. The schoolmaster is telling you that you need a better Yes, person. yeah. You need something better. You need a better sacrifice, a better. You. Well, I think well because first of all, let's remember in the millennial kingdom, there will be humans born sinners in sin. So I think that's one aspect of it. And I think the other, so there will, you know, that's interesting. I wonder, I never really thought about, um, 
No, because there's a time when every living Jewish person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. At the beginning. Um, Everybody's going into the, the millennium, I thought, was born again. But there, there is a time coming and when the Antichrist is approaching Jerusalem and, you know, the, the people just think they have no hope that they finally realize it's the spirit of supplication will be poured upon them and they will mourn over my son as one mourns over a firstborn. They will, at that point, they will understand that they have crucified the Messiah and they will cry out to him and that's when he comes back. And so, and so the question that I've never thought about, will there be any unbelieving Jewish children born in the millennial kingdom? Well, think about it. If every Jew who enters the millennium is a believer, will they enter in human or will they be s s translated into their glorified bodies? Oh, I think, I think the ones who walk into the kingdom is, are, are still mortal. Okay, so then they would give birth to? Adamic babies. Adamic babies. Okay, <laughs> which, which might be another reason for offerings, sacrifices in the millennial, in the millennial right, temple. The ones who are translated aren't given in marriage and don't have children. Yeah, okay. All right, uh, that, that makes sense. It, 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 one reason is that it's a, uh, a reminder, constant reminder to the people then of what yeah. they had before and now, now they have him. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a visual lesson that points back to the children who need to trust Christ. Yeah. Okay. So... The law, the law of the Levitical priesthood, again, was ultimately weak and unprofitable and made nothing perfect. Verse 18 says, On the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So there's a better priesthood, right? There's a better, there's a better temple. And there's a better law, isn't there? The law that's written on men's heart rather than the law that's inscribed on stone. Yeah. Right? Okay. So the law was weak, which is feeble. It was unprofitable, useless. Uh, and again, perfect it has the force of the superlative. It could only deal with unintentional sin and only on the physical plane, which dealt with the issue of continued fellowship with God's people. All right. So in Christ, Jewish believers had a far better hope, one that dealt with the full spectrum of sin. But in the strictest sense, this better hope applied only to the Jew who came to Christ. The Gentile had no hope under the Levitical system. He was excluded. The importance of people, and this has you know, always been a, a pet peeve of mine, especially when it comes to the issue of how apples and oranges get mixed up in covenant theology. It's important to keep apples and oranges straight. None of the covenants that are part of the Abrahamic covenant were given to Gentiles. Romans 9, 3-5 says, For I could wish that I myself was accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. It's very specific here now. There's no spiritualizing this. Paul makes it very clear here because he's, 
He's smart enough to anticipate that there are those who are going to try and spiritualize his words away. My brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. This includes the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Does it say with the world? No, it says with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, Luke 22.20, we see that initiated. Likewise, he also, that's Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The Gentiles were left without hope. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, okay, so we're never part of that nation, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, We've got to keep these, these categories right. However, God had planned to make us who were without hope and without him sharers of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. Ephesians 2, 14 to 22 says, For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now who is he talking about there? Both. Both who? Jews and Gentiles, okay? Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, as a result of this priesthood, we are no longer a people with no hope. There is a perfect priesthood. Again, that's the superlative. It's the greatest. No matter what we face as individuals or as a corporate body, there is never a reason for us be to become hopeless. In Christ, we have the greatest hope for a better day because he is the last in the line of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Comes before and doesn't supersede it always stood aside apart and above 
from the Levitical priesthood. And we'll see as we get into this that, that so do you ever wonder, do you remember when, uh, when uh, in the resurrection account, when, um, I don't know if it was Mary or one of the other ladies who recognized that it was Jesus, and Jesus said, don't touch me yet because I have not yet ascended to my Father. Okay, do you ever wonder what that's all about? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a clear passage here in Hebrews that talks about Christ with his blood had to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle. So the question arises, why did he have to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle with his blood? Why did he have to cleanse the tabernacle with his blood? So, you know, you think about that. Well, did, did Christ descend with somehow a vial of his blood to cleanse, you know, the heavenly tabernacle? Well, the answer to that question is, is quite clear because the heavenly tabernacle was corrupted in the satanic rebellion. 